Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Documentary filmmaker Dan Levitt sheds light on the tiniest bits of what humans are made of in his new book, What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang through Last Night's Dinner. As its title suggests, it's a mix of astronomy, physics, biology, and chemistry, and the stories of the scientists who have made groundbreaking discoveries. The book is published by Harper and brings Dan Levitt to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much. I'm really thrilled to be here. Oh, well, I'm thrilled to have you. Fascinating story you tell here. You open your book by quoting something Carl Sagan once said, that we're made of star stuff. What did he mean by that? That's really what the book uh, tells. You know, Carl Sagan said, we're star stuff, but when you look at how it works in details, you really gain a much deeper understanding of it. We are made from elements. The elements were made in stars. They found their way to Earth, and they made us. And it's an unbelievably dramatic story of how it happened. And you say it's an improbable story. It is. There are so many things improbable about why, why we're here. Uh, you could start with the fact that after the right after the Big Bang, there were a billion and one particles of antimatter and matter, sorry, a billion particles of antimatter and matter that sprang out. But for some reason that we don't understand, a billion and one, there was one more, a billion and one particles of matter and a billion particles of antimatter. And those, we're the leftovers. We're the tiny little particles that didn't annihilate each other when, mm. uh, when they met. We, um, uh, we were on Earth, our particles, our atoms were on Earth, when the Earth was smashed uh, by a Mars-sized planet that completely melted Earth's to its core. Hmm. That was a lucky break because it created, the Earth, the, um, it created a molten core, which creates a magnetic field that protects the Earth from, uh, from cosmic rays. There are all kinds of ways in which we are just so lucky that we're here, and in, in some ways it just seems so improbable, and yet here we are. How much of the story you're telling here began nearly 100 years ago with the work of Georges Lemaitre, a Belgian scientist and Catholic priest? You know, a, a, a lot of it did. Lemaitre really showed us where our ultimate birthday was, was the, which was the Big Bang. I, you know, I love him. There are so many great characters in, in, in the book, but he's one of my favorites because it, it was a Catholic priest of all people who showed Einstein where he was wrong. Um, and, and, Einstein, and Einstein didn't go along with it initially, but he came around years later. No, that's right. And it wasn't that many years, years later. That's right. So uh, Lemaitre um, uh, heard about Einstein, about... Lemaitre did his work in the early 1920s when Einstein's theory was very new. And he heard about... The theory of general relativity. The, not, yeah, that's right. And he, and he heard about astronomical observations that these were quite hazy at the time, right? That um, the most distant galaxies were, much, were, were accelerating away from Earth much faster than ones that were closer. And from that, it suggested to him, and he looked into Einstein's theory and he found uh, that it was very possible that the universe itself was actually expanding. So he... He talked to Einstein, and he, he tracked him down, actually, and, and he told him this, and Einstein said, well, your physics is great, but your physical intu intuition is wrong. There's no way the universe is expanding. It's just too weird, right? But Lemaitre went and dove back deeper into Einstein's theory, and he reasoned, if the universe is expanding now, a little earlier it was smaller, a little earlier it was smaller, and if you go back far enough, the entire universe would be contained in teeny tiny little infinitesimal dot of time and space. No, Einstein, Einstein hated this idea. Yeah, he was convinced at first that Lemaitre was inspired by Christian dogma. Was that simply because Lemaitre presented himself very much as a priest? Lemaitre wore a clerical collar, and you know, and, and I think that he—that's exactly right. I I think that he um, thought that that was Lemaitre's motivation. No, well. How much of the story you're telling, uh, well, 
so was Lemaitre the first person to posit that there's an expanding universe, uh, what's come to be known as the Hubble-Lemaitre law? There was actually one other uh, Russian physicist by the name of Alexander Friedman who suggested this even earlier. Uh, but he, when he looked at Einstein's theories, he recognized that theoretically the universe could be expanding or contracting. Uh, but unfortunately, he tragically died of typhus, and Lemaitre was the first one who actually uh, tied the theory of an expanding universe to observational evidence. And so it was really bringing the observational, the, the evidence to the theory that convinced Einstein and, many, and, and ultimately everybody else that in fact it was correct. But most of Lemaitre's fellow scientists rejected the idea at first. Didn't Fred Hoyle call, coin the term Big Bang as a put-down? He did it. I mean, it, it just seemed so ludicrous to him and to others. Lemaitre's teacher, Sir Arthur Eddington, uh, who was a, a you know one of the one of the most respected physicists outside of Einstein? You know, called the the, the called the theory just ridiculous. It was just ab abominable. Mm -hmm. And um, Hoyle, for many years, uh, Fred Hoyle is an unbelievably uh, 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 well respected physicist. But he's among the public. Uh, he's uh, perhaps best known for being the most vociferous at. Um, opponent of the Big Bang, and he, and he was an opponent for many, many years. How have we come up with the figure that the Big Bang took place 13.7 billion years ago? That seems kind of specific. Why not 14 billion or 13.5 billion? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, my understanding is that uh, when you look at Einstein's equations and you understand the mass of the universe and other things that are honestly not at the tip of my tongue right now, you're able to roll back and do the calculations. But it has to do mm -hmm. with the our understanding of how large the universe is and how much mass we believe is in it and, and the mathematics. The Big Bang started with a hot and dense single point that inflated and stretched first at great speeds and then at a more measurable rate over the, over the next 13.7 billion years, uh, and it's still expanding today. It is, and that's, um, uh, you know, don't, don't get too uh, dismal about this, but it will keep expanding and expanding and expanding uh, to the point where at some point we won't be able to see any other stars, hmm. and it will now, keep expanding. It? Yeah. Now, are the stars moving away, or is the space between us and the stars getting larger? That's exactly it. It's the space between the galaxies that are getting larger. Do we know why? That's the um, that's what we've observed and we know happens. To explain why the universe is expanding, that's one of the big mysteries that every physicist would love to know. Hmm. The immense heat caused by the Big Bang permitted almost nothing to exist except the simplest elements, hydrogen and helium. How many years after expansion and cooling did those two condense into stars? Um, I think it took about 100 million years. Yeah. I, I might be off by a little bit, but that no, that's is a the figure. That's the figure that I... That's the figure I got from your book, 100 million years. Yeah, yeah, which, which is really not very much time at all. Really? Well, I'm, you know, I'm 82 years old. I don't expect to live much longer. Definitely <laughs> not 100 million. <laughs> well, in, in, compared to 3.8 billion, <laughs> there's a big difference. <laughs> Didn't heat and pressure squeeze... The, these uh, hydrogen and helium into heavier elements and and in then even heavier ones when aging stars exploded? They they did. It, it wasn't simply uh, squeezing, but yes, that's, that's exactly right. Our elements were formed in the stars. First, in very large stars, when heat allowed hydrogen to fuse into helium, and then 
that fusion, which we know because that's where we get our heat from, created in large stars enough heat and made those uh, uh, protons uh, move fast enough that they created, they squeezed more protons into nuclei, creating uh, carbon. When carbon was created, that created even more heat, allowing even more elements to form. So it was kind of a bootstrap operation where the uh, creation of, of new elements uh, made it possible for even um, heavier ones to be created up to the sure. uh, up to the um, uh, element iron, which has 40 protons in its nucleus. Hmm. After that, it took much, much more energy to cram protons, which are positively charged and so they naturally want to repel each other. Uh, it took so much more energy to cram them into nuclei. And the only reason that happened was because the, those large stars exploded in supernova, which we know are the most powerful explosions in the universe. And after billions of years, galaxies and planetary systems formed, including the Earth four and a half billion years ago. Yeah, so what happened was that from stars and from the supernova, there were huge clouds of, of dust and gas of the different elements that swept out into space. And our solar system was formed from a massive cloud of that that condensed most of it, 99%, which was largely hydrogen condensed into the into the sun, but there was a um, a large a ring that uh, remained around it, and and that the uh, uh, created our planets. Now, have you done other things involving science over the years? Uh, you've done documentaries for National Geographic, Discovery, Science History, so. You're, you're somebody who's already been interested in this sort of thing. Uh, I know I find the story fascinating, but there's no way I could have written this book or even known where to begin. Well, I've, I've done science and history films for many, many years, and I've always loved science. But I have to tell you, when I started the book, I knew almost nothing that was in, was in it, which was, that was the delight of it. That's what I loved about it, was that um, I learned so much and I got to talk to scientists and say, how does this work? And mm -hmm. and they were so kind and gracious enough to to, to help me understand it. But, um, uh, but I have spent most of my career learning about things, largely science, and then uh, figuring out how to explain them in, in, in a fun, entertaining way. And that's why this book was such a joy to me. The book we're talking about is What's Gotten Into You, the story of your body's atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner, published by Harper. My guest is Dan Levitt, and this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. As I understand it, scientists still have no idea how life began. You write that it happened rather quickly within just a few hundred million years would, would that suggest that it's likely that there's life on other planets as well uh it is and um that that hunt that quickly hundred billion years is the speculation of of one scientist there are there's a lot that's uh contested mm. in the origin of life although I, I will also say that there are quite a number of theories that go a long way in explaining how life began. We have lots of competing theories. We just don't have uh, one that, that most people subscribe to. And there are big holes, honestly, in, in many of them still. There's still so much we don't know. But yes, there are, there are a lot of scientists who think that, uh, that it's very likely that the same conditions that we have that, that were on Earth when life evolved are very common throughout the uh, uh, throughout the universe on planets throughout the universe, and that absolutely that there could be life in many other places. Hasn't life on Earth been bacterial for most of its existence? 
It has. Uh, it's been bacterial from about 2.2 or 3.8 billion years, depending upon, well, actually 3.8 or even larger. Uh, to how, how do we come around... up with figures like that? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great question. And that has to do, believe it or not, with fossils. They uh -huh. found uh, 3.8 billion years ago, they found this, this, uh, these fantastic formations called stromatolites that show that, that are clearly created by life. There's actually chemical evidence that, that, that suggests that life could be 4.2 billion years ago. Not everyone agrees that that's right, but which I, I have to say, by the way, is incredible because the, our Earth is 4.5 billion years old. And to have life begin 4.2 billion years ago, or even 3.8 billion years ago, is is just unbelievable. And that, as we said, was bacterial. Plants came later, right? Yeah, that's right. It was bacterial life for uh, uh, until you know 1.2 ish, 1.4 ish billion years ago. That hmm. that's right. Uh, there were bacteria, then came animals in the oceans. Plants didn't come along on the continents, and that's where they evolved, until about 400 million years ago. Animals evolved, uh, you know, ballparkish, 500-ish, uh, so another 100 million years earlier. Plants make up 80% of Earth's biomass. No? They do. It It is incredible uh, how much of the... Um, of the earth they actually cover. So how plants, well, we have, we have uh, fish, which later become the animals that wind up on, on land. How did one thing become another thing? Do we know? Yeah. Um, so, Fish evolved from uh, tiny, much more primitive animals, possibly wor little wormish animals in the ocean. Plants evolved from uh, cyanobacteria. They evolved from algae, which evolved, I believe, from cyanobacteria, which a particular kind of of bacteria which could photosynthesize, or at least that be and and so plant uh, uh, plants actually evolved possibly in waterways or by the land from algae and sprang up. Whereas, of course, the animals that are on land we know evolved from the four-limbed uh, creatures that crawled out of the sea that descended from fish. One of the uh more astounding facts here is that every one of us contains a billion times more atoms than all the grains of sand in the Earth's deserts, one of us alone. So how you many know, that's atoms... that's one of the things... Yeah, yeah I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no, you finish. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, that's one of the things that I, I, I just have a, such a hard time getting my head around. Yeah. Uh, we, so our bodies contain 30 trillion uh, uh, cells and each one of those cells contains a hundred million atoms huh. it's I, to me it's just I, I think we can't it's it's almost impossible for us to really com comprehend how complex we you and I truly are so cells are, are made up of lots of atoms uh, how do we even know about those atoms? Is this a theory or because they can't be seen? Well, no, the, the atoms can't be seen uh, entirely. We, we do have the, the tool of X-ray crystallography, which uses X-rays to bounce um, uh, those electromagnetic waves off atoms. And so in a sense, when we when we look at the structure of DNA, for instance, uh, you you can with electron microscopes and with and and with some tools like X-ray crystallography, you can actually detect individual atoms and formations of atoms. You note that a 150-pound human body contains 60 elements, including 
enough carbon to make 25 pounds of charcoal, enough salt to fill a salt shaker, enough chlorine to disinfect several backyard swimming pools, and enough iron to make a three-inch nail. So uh, on an open market, our body chemicals would bring around $2,000? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, uh, now, of course, if you uh, were trying to make... Um, uh, it, it, there, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of disagreement about how you come up with that finger figure because there are lots of different ways to do it. For instance, if you decided to go out to the supermarket and buy water, if you were trying uh, instead mm -hmm. of um, uh, calculating the, uh, the the hydrogen and the ox the price of ho hydrogen and oxygen independently, you it might actually fetch a little bit less. But ab mm -hmm. absolutely, we have over sixty elements in our body. About 24 of them are essential elements. The others are, are basically, uh, they're along for the ride because, you know, whatever gets into the dirt gets into you. Um, Such but, as. Almost, but almost 99% of them are just six elements, the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, sulfur, uh, potassium, and um, uh, one which I may be forgetting. Chlorine. No. Well, no, iron. chlorine is not the. Uh, oh. it, we do have chlorine in our bodies, yes, but it's mm -hmm. it's hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, sulfur, and oxygen. Yeah, and these elements combine to make us human. Uh, would they also combine to make m my pet dog a dog or a dolphin a dolphin? Yeah, one of the things, I mean, there was so much that I, I learned that I just had no idea about when I started out. And one of them is how closely we con uh, connected we are to all life forms. Every single life form in the, uh, on Earth has a certain fundamental biochemistry. Uh, we have the same amino acids that we use to create DNA and RNA, um, and, we're, and we're made largely of the same elements no matter Not of that, why. but we also no. have certain um uh, we have certain mechanisms within ourselves to create our metabolism and to create uh to create life that are also shared the 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 little mo uh, molecular machines that create amino acids and so on so absolutely the bio the the, the basic chemistry of all life is in, is really similar and so how does uh, it wind up creating humans? Uh, or I, I don't even know if we are the ultimate uh, development. Maybe uh, walruses are. <laughs> right. Well, actually, there are a lot of biologists who, who will quibble if you say one animal is more sophisticated mm -hmm. than the other because they'll say, mm -hmm. you know, bacteria are sophisticated in their own way. But, mm -hmm. you know, we've only learned about this in the last probably 50 years or so. Um, uh, we share, you've probably heard that we share about 98% of our genes with chimpanzees. So what's yes. the difference between chimps and us? The difference largely is not in the genes that we have, in, in, but in how they're used. There are differences in the way particular genes are turned on and turned off, and when they're turned on and turned off. And that creates differences between people, differences between species. Uh, you know, we have, we've got an awful lot of genes, I'm sure, in common with dogs uh, as, as well, but it's, it's how they're used that makes the difference. And over the course of uh, human history, there have been a number of different hominids. There have been Neanderthals, for example, and, and others. Uh, and then there have been mixes. So this can get pretty complicated. Uh, it does. And, I, you know, you probably know that the Nobel Prize was won this year in, um, I believe it was in biology, uh, by... Um, uh, by a wonderful Swedish scientist who's been able to reconstruct the DNA of Neanderthal to a certain extent. Really? And so, and, and so what we know well, but is that to we some have degree, some... Yeah. Yeah. We have Neanderthal in us. 
don't we? Well, or exactly. Many, that's the, many that's of us, the point, anyway. right? That, that we have Neanderthal genes in us. Exactly. I know I did a show on Neanderthals, and it turns out that they were a lot more sophisticated than was originally thought. Yes, ab- absolutely. I, you know, I think we're learning still so much about them. Uh, and um, there, you know, we used to think, as, as, as I'm sure you know, that um, uh, there were a few uh, um, hominids before us and that it was a straight progression. But now mm. scientists think that there are um, there were many different kinds of hominids living at the same time. And again, it goes back to uh, fairly minor changes in how genes were used. Well, when I watch the news on television, I wonder whether that still isn't the case. (laughs) I don't want to get too political here. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm speaking about the story of our body's atoms from the Big Bang through last night's dinner with Dan Levitt, a documentary filmmaker who's written a book called What's Gotten Into You. Um, We're going to go to a little break here, Dan, but is there something you want to add to what we've been saying before we go to the break? Well, you know, I I, I think one of the things that um, I just uh, have been astonished by when I when I researched the book was how many unbelievably catastrophic events our Mm -hmm. atoms witnessed so to speak uh before the earth became peaceful from their you know from from being in this infernal huge stars to massive explosions when the planets were formed to being on earth when this snowball huge snowball completely encased the entire Earth. Hmm. It's just an unbelievably dramatic story, and I, I've just had so much fun learning about it. Aren't there people who believe that we're still going through the changing process and that global warming and other things might very well change the planet in the fairly near future and make life difficult for some of us? I don't think there's any question that global warming is going to make it difficult for some for some of us yes i mean the, the the earth has 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 gotten warmer and colder many times before i think there's no question about that you're listening to let it low pit at large on wbai new york 99.5 fm and streaming live at wbai.org our whole universe was in a hot dense state that nearly 14 million years ago expansion started waiting the earth began to cool the autotrophs began to drool neanderthals developed tools we built a wall we built the pyramids math science history unraveling the mystery that all started with a big bang since the dawn of man I, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with dan levitt Uh, If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. Uh, You can do that by going online to give to WBAI.org or calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. Don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Dan Levitt, whose book, What's Gotten Into You, The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner, is published by Harper. Mr. Levitt has been writing, producing, and directing award-winning documentaries for over 25 years. You write in your introduction that this book was inspired by a warning because your teenage daughter had decided to become a vegetarian? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, like any parent, I was my first thought was, hmm, well, what does she have to eat in order to remain healthy? And when I thought about it, I realized, you know, I had absolutely no idea what our bodies were actually made of. 
And then it occurred to me, well, those, whatever it was, had to have some kind of history. And the more I thought about it, and, and, and I did a little bit of research, I discovered that all the particles in our body originated 13.8 billion years ago in the Big Bang. And not only that, but unbelievably, those particles that made it from the Big Bang to Earth are now able to look back and, hmm. and reconstruct that ancient history. And when I realized that, I thought, oh my God, what an amazing story. Not just how we got here, but how did we learn how we got here? And that's, that was just the, 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 the impetus for the book. Well, since the uh, things that make humans also make vegetables, aren't we to some degree all vegetarian, whether we eat only vegetables or not? Oh, entirely. You're, you're completely right. We are completely dependent on plants and photosynthesis. Uh, mm. If plants make the sugars, the fats, the carbohydrates that are in our body. Now, of course, we eat animals, but those animals ultimately eat plants. And not only that, but plants, hmm. um, plants uh, uh, collect all the, all the um, minerals that we need in order to exist. Uh, plants are mineral traps. They take minerals in and they don't let them go. And they have all these wonderful alliances with bacteria and fungi to, to find minerals and to bring them into their bodies. If, if we had to go around, run around trying to find you know, strontium or the other, the other <laughs> minerals, uh, iron, you know, that we had to have every day in order to survive. Uh, we couldn't do it, but plants find those minerals and that's how we get them. And that's how we're able to survive. We really piggyback off of them. You, you actually ask in the book, what do you need to eat to survive? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we all, all need know that, now that you need fats and carbohydrates and proteins. There was a long time when people had absolutely no idea that we needed vitamins because it's this teeny tiny amount of a substance that one wouldn't naturally know existed, except that if you don't have it and you don't eat it, you get sick. And the same mm -hmm. thing, of course, happens uh, is, is true of minerals. There, there are certain minerals that we need in very small amounts. Uh, and it took a lot of work to figure out what those were. You've devoted one of your chapters to photosynthesis, and you write that photosynthesis was discovered in 1779 by, I'm quoting you, a well-coiffed 49-year-old Dutch physician and natural philosopher named Jan Ingenhaus. How did he come up with it? So he was following up on work by uh, Joseph Priestley, the, the, the fiery famed mm -hmm. chemist Priestley. And Priestley had seen, uh, uh, had done an experiment that suggested to him that what they called fixed air, which we now know of carbon dioxide, was uh, absorbed uh, by plants. Uh, and and you, you might remember that he did this experiment with with mice where he covered he, he covered mice and he found that if you put, if you put a plant in with a, a sprig of, of a mint or something in with the mice, it restored the air. Uh, but Priestley really had no idea whether it was reliably happening or what caused it. So Inkenhaus took an apparatus. He actually took the summer off. He was, a, and, and went to a, rented a country manor in England and he took an apparatus and he tried to systematically measure the air taken the composition of the air taken in and released by by plants and the key discovery that he made that Priestley really had no idea about was that it required sunlight and you know this is one photosynthesis is just amazing this is something that you know I probably learned about in high school and really paid no attention to and now I think it's you know the most unbelievable chemical reaction you know in in existence through photosynthesis a plant or bacteria takes carbon dioxide from the air, hydrogen that it takes from water, and sunlight, and it makes sugar out of it. Hmm. It makes food. And, and that's essentially what Ingenhaus discovered. 
And if it didn't take the uh, carbon dioxide from the air, we'd be dead by now, wouldn't we? Well, we wouldn't. Uh, we wouldn't have be alive. We wouldn't have even existed. Because, exactly. Uh, that's that's exactly right. We wouldn't. We wouldn't exist. because we can't live in a world with a lot of carbon dioxide. So there's a kind of a, a symbiotic relationship here. Well, yeah. I, that, what what you say is true in in a number of different ways. Um, uh, carbon dioxide comes from the depths of the earth and is vented in the atmosphere. Um, it uh, certainly, um, I, I, going back to photosynthesis for a minute, what, what's fun about it is to realize that we are, our bodies are over 93% products of photosynthesis and about 83% hmm. came from, of the mass of our bodies came from carbon dioxide that's in the air that photosynthesis took out. They took it out and, and transformed it? They transformed it into sugar. That's right. Mm. That's right. The food we eat is came from carbon dioxide and hydrogen. Plants and, and bacteria made sugar out, sugars, and, and then they used that to make other compounds, fats and, and carbohydrates and so out of it. And that's the basis of the food that we eat. So what happened with your daughter? Did she remain a vegetarian? <laughs> well, she was a vegetarian for a long time. She is no longer. Uh, but, you know, I did learn, of course, that you can have a very healthy vegetarian uh, mm. diet. That's, it's not a problem at all. You, you just have to watch out for a couple things. One of them is vitamin B12 is something that's, that's not in a lot of plants. And you have to be careful about that. But um, I, once I started looking into it, I wasn't too concerned about that either. Well, it's a lot easier to have an all-vegetarian diet than to have an all-meat diet, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In terms of health, there's no question about it. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Dan Levitt. He's written a book called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner, published by Harper. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You include snapshot biographies of a number of scientists. Can we uh, go through some of them? Yeah, that would be great. Uh, you know, there's so many of them that I loved. You know, one of my favorite was uh, a wonderful astronomer by the name of Cecilia Payne. You say she transformed our view of how stars work. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the amazing thing is that she did this in the 1920s when, as you can imagine, there were hardly any women in, in, in science, particularly in physics. She went to Cambridge University and, uh, you know, at the time uh, she was mortified because women were not allowed to sit in the same row as men. So she had to sit in the, in, in the front row by herself. And there were quite a number of her professors who were not so wild about having women there. But she absolutely... And what reason did they give? Well, um, I... After all, I'm, I'm sure that when they gave a test, the women did as well as the men. Well, women, there, there were not many of them. She was probably the only one in, 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 in the class. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I think it was just the times. You have to realize when, when she graduated, uh, women were not given diplomas. They finished their coursework, but they were never given a sheepskin or invited to the actual graduation ceremony. Oh, my because, God. Yeah. So, so when Payne came to the end of her study, she realized that basically the best that she could do, even though she'd done wonderful research, was to become a schoolmistress. And to her, it's, she wrote a wonderful biography, and she writes about you know the prospect of that being uh, you know as as, uh, as as bad as death. But she was she was unbelievably uh, 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 she she had unbelievable perseverance. She wrangled a scholarship t to come to Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, to do research there. And the great thing is there. Um, 
she was the only one who knew enough quantum physics because she had just come from Cambridge where, where, where it was all so new to apply that theory to analyzing this vast collection of photographic plates of the stars that, uh, that Harvard was amassing. And from that, she completely overturned our understanding of stars because scientists believed at the time that, that, that stars had the same composition as Earth. So they thought stars had a huge, massive iron core like Earth thought. The, 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 the Earth and the stars were made of the same stuff. And what Payne found was that stars were 98% hydrogen and helium and hmm. very small amounts of everything else, which is and not what find that out? taught. How did she um, find that? So the light from stars, when you analyze it, you can separate it into, uh, uh, into tiny, um, through, a, uh, through a spectroscope, you can separate it into tiny bands. And if you analyze those thin little lines, you can determine what elements are in stars. Now, mm. they already knew that when she arrived. But by using theories of, by using equations of quantum physics and an awful lot of work, uh, she was able to figure out in a way that they weren't able to determine before the proportions of the elements in stars. But when she came up with this theory, she was, uh, uh, her doc, this was a doctorate theory and, and, and the, probably the most illustrious astrophysicist of the time told her it's a wonderful dissertation and many of the things that you write in it are wonderful, but this particular conclusion, there's no way that it could be true. There's no way hmm. that, uh, and, and, um, so she wrote in her dissertation, she wrote this particular observation is very likely not, not correct, which she always regretted, but she was a graduate hmm. student and she was a woman and she didn't feel like she could, um, uh, that she that she had any choice. Uh, some years later, that same scientist, uh, who had good reasons at the time for for quest for uh, questioning that conclusion, found through other uh, uh, avenues of evidence that in fact she was right, and he published a paper saying that in fact stars are almost entirely hydrogen and helium. And by the way, Cecilia Payne's calculations fit into this picture very nicely. And what happened to her uh, in, in the years after this? Did she have a successful career? Was she able to break through the, uh, the sexism in, in, the, in the area that she was working in? You know, she was, she was, she was very highly respected, but there were still, it was still a lot of, um, she had a lot of, uh, of struggles to overcome. When she, after she finished her dissertation, which was acclaimed by, you know, one very, very famous um, astronomer as the, the best PhD uh, dissertation in astronomy that's ever been written. Um, she was allowed to, in, in addition to research, she was allowed to teach classes, but she was mm -hmm. not, her classes were not actually put on the syllabus. She was not actually cons uh, considered a professor. Harvard's pr president vowed that she would not, she or any woman would not be appointed a professor as long as he was alive. Wow. It, was, it was a different time. There was just so much opposition to, to, to women holding positions in academia. And she certainly suffered from it. Although eventually after he died, she eventually became head of, of Harvard's astronomy department. <laughs> and uh, when did she die? I'm going to say, I'm not well, sure, you, I, the 60s or early 70s. Yeah, yeah I, I would say the 70s. I, I interviewed a wonderful um, uh, astrophysicist, um, Owen Gingrich, at, at Harvard-Smithsonian, who was her, her, uh, one of her graduate students, and he had wonderful things to say about her. You also write about the work of Harold Jury, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1934. Yuri was interesting um, because he he's, uh, was a geologist, but he inspired one of the most famous uh, experiments in biology rather than geology because he was a professor when a young 
undergraduate by the name of uh, graduate student rather by the name of Stanley Miller came to the University of Chicago in the uh, 1950s. And Miller was inspired by one of Yuri's lectures to investigate the origin of life. Because one of the big questions was, we're made of organic molecules, which are made of carbon and oxygen. And, and, and the question was, how are organic molecules formed? And no one had any I idea, or at least there were theoretical uh, 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 speculation about it. But, but it seemed too far removed to possibly test. And inspired by Yuri, uh, Miller took the, some of the very simple basic gases that he speculated would be on the early earth, like ammonia and uh, water vapor and others. He put them in a glass, you might remember this from your biology classes, he put them in a glass tube and uh, fired a spark through it. And he actually created some amino acids, which are some of the mm. building blocks of our, of our proteins and, and our cells. So that was uh, a tremendously influential experiment in, the, in thinking about the origin of life. Another scientist you write about is Albert Claude. He also, he shared a Nobel Prize in medicine. He did. And Claude is, you know, he's one of the, uh, another one of my favorite scientists uh, in the book. Because I, I have to say that most of these people, if I have seen their names in the past, I've forgotten them. Yes, or you, you probably haven't seen the names of many of them, and, and Claude was one of them. Just like Le, uh, Leeuwenhoek, the, 17, mm. the, the um, Him, uh, scientist heard in the 1700s, right, who looked yeah. in a drop of water, and he was the first to see these little, these little things floating around, which were life forms, bacteria. Claude really pioneered the tools that allowed us to, for the first time, understand that there was so much more going on in cells than anybody ever expected. Uh, it was it was really interesting because at the time in the 1920s when he came on the scene, we had no idea what were in a cell, in in the cells in our body. You know, our body, as I mentioned, are made of 30 trillion cells. But when scientists took their microscope and looked at a cell, all they could see was the nucleus, DNA, something called a mitochondria. They had no one, no idea what, what that did, and maybe another thing called the Golgi body. But that was it. Other than that, they couldn't see anything else. And so what they thought was that outside of the nucleus, what created life in our cells was just enzymes, which are the uh, uh, molecules that accelerate reactions, running around with all the other stuff kind of willy-nilly and, and creating life. Claude believed that there had to be something else there, but you couldn't see it with a microscope. So he developed two tools. He used a centrifuge, and he used the and and he exploited the a new tool which just came on the scene, which was the electron microscope. Hmm. And he re helped reveal that our cells are filled with an unbelievable number of fantastic structures. We have energy-producing factories. We have uh, amino acid-producing factories. We have disposal units. We have. Um, uh, all kinds of, of, of structures in the cell that no one ever dreamed of. And um, it was really his work that brought that to the fore. And also, I mean, I, nowadays we know that some of these structures are responsible for, for diseases. Uh, you know, there are various kinds of, of, of amenia, uh, anemia, rather, and, and, and many other kinds of diseases that uh, are dysfunctions of some of these um, structures within our cells that no one dreamed of just in the 1920s. Now, we're almost out of time, so I don't have, we don't have much time to get to some of the other scientists I was curious about, like Peter Mitchell and Jennifer hmm. Moyle and their chemiosmatic theory. Uh, but is there anything you want to add for about a minute or two before we go? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I just want to say that... Um, one of the things that I gained from, from researching the book was I just came away with a much greater respect for how, how complex even the simplest cell is, hmm. how unbelievably complex it is. And we're made of 30 trillion cells. Uh, and so now there's kind of a funny way in which when I look around at people, 
I say, oh my God, you are unbelievably complex. And our <laughs> atoms share the very same deep history. And, uh, you know, so in a, there's a way in which that actually gives me more respect for others, that we're all, we're all astounding creatures, and we're just so lucky to be here. Although it is interesting that some of us are much more worthy of respect than others, but that's a whole other matter. Is that, <laughs> okay. Does that have anything to do with the story you tell? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm following you there. <laughs> well, there are good people and less good people. There are brilliant <laughs> people and no, not so smart people. There are indeed, but um, that's not uh, that's not part of the story that I tell in this book. Maybe in no. another one. <laughs> and the book that we're talking about is What's Gotten Into You, The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner, published by Harper. My guest has been Dan Levitt, who's been writing, producing, and directing award-winning documentaries for over 25 years. And I thank you so much for being on our show today. You've been a great guest. Leonard, this has been so much fun. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our approximately 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbai.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2wbai.org. Because, you know, we are the only, we don't rely on foundation grants or on ads or anything. We rely 100% on the support of our audience and audience that we hope is engaged. And if you, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London located large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, What's Gotten Into You by Dan Levitt. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever you feel comfortable with. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because as I said, we rely 100% on listener donations. Um, we are the only radio station in New York Dial that's 100% listener sponsored. And... When you do support us, it's tax deductible. And we hope that you can join us tomorrow when my guest Philip Bump will discuss his new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. We'll see you then.